plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? These people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above that is above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Be glad, barren woman, who you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because the more ch are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now, but what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has, sent us, has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You are trying to be justified by the law, by the law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching of circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires 
what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idol idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that, th that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Amen. You may be seated. Yeah, you can please, uh, please give a round of applause to Amanda. What a beautiful job reading a really awkward and beautiful passage of Scripture. I was just like, you know what we're going to do today? Make this as hard as possible. And she crushed it. Uh, never heard the word emasculate read so beautifully. <laughs> Let's uh, pray after that bad joke, and then we'll get going. Jesus, thank you for the community of people that has gathered here today. Thank you for the story that was read, the songs that were sung the invitation to worship in the space of the table. God, in all these things, no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter what we bring into this place today, in all of these gestures, in all of these expressions, in all of these utterances, would we hear a good news story about you that writes over us the narrative of love, belonging, welcome. God, help us to hear that story anew today, no matter how many times we've heard it before. And help us to find the freedom of love that operates through faith. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Um, well, great. I, uh, I don't normally title sermons, and I don't normally tell you the title of the sermon, uh, it always felt like a strange thing to do, but today I'm going to tell you the title of the sermon that I have named because of the content and conversation that we're going to be having today. So I've named today's sermon, Stories of Shadow and Stories of Light. And the reason that I've named it that, and the reason that we're going to talk about this is that today we're going to have a conversation about the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories we believe versus the story that God is telling and the story that he is inviting us into. Throughout this series, we've been having a conversation about the gospel. The book of Galatians is a book in which Paul is explaining the gospel, trying to make sense of what is this news that the church believes and that has been proclaimed. And gospel, very literally, means story. The word gospel comes from the old English God spell, which can translate most directly to good story. You love that because it's great, or you love it because you're a musical theater nerd at heart and it triggers something in there for you. But we can also trace that word all the way back to its Greek origins, euangelion, which means good news. So gospel very simply and very profoundly means good news story. 
And over the last couple of weeks, we've been articulating what is this good news story that we believe? What is the good news story that's being proclaimed throughout the story of the Bible? What is the good news story that Paul is trying to help the Galatians understand? And simply, if we're going to try to summarize it together, what we've seen throughout the book of Galatians is that this good news story is a story about Jesus' work to rescue, to restore, and to create a family of people who never should have belonged together in the first place. Paul's big concern in the book of Galatians is that Gentiles and Jewish believers could together find themselves at home around the table in Christ, that God is creating a community of people who are free to love one another because of Jesus. So he's declaring this good news story throughout the book of Galatians, but the problem in this book is that this good news story is not the only story available to us. It's not the only story that vies for our attention. It's not the only story that vies for our hearts. It's not the only story even that professes to be a gospel story. Paul throughout Galatians says people are teaching you a different gospel. They're advocating for a different narrative and they're calling it the God story. And like the God story, like gospel, it offers us an understanding of the world. It offers us an understanding of God. It offers us an understanding of ourself. And these two stories become tricky to diagnose and to separate out. They're tricky to navigate because this gospel story, that is a false gospel story, as Paul calls it, is still deeply rooted in tradition, history, experiences, and beliefs. In the book of Galatians, this other gospel story is rooted in the history of Israel. It's rooted in the Old Testament law. It's rooted in the identity and formation of the Jewish people that have now formed themselves into the church. And so to say it's a false gospel feels offensive to them because it's connected to so many things about their identity and their tradition. It is difficult to diagnose or separate out. So Paul writes this book in Galatians to address these two different stories. To diagnose this false story and to proclaim the good news story. Because as we have seen in this book, believing a false story is not benign. It's leading to painful and difficult conflicts. In the book of Galatians, the Jews and the Gentiles are no longer eating together or worshiping together. They have become racially and religiously segregated because of the story they believe. It's leading to disunity. It's leading to isolation. It's leading to shame and self-righteousness. All these things that can destroy a family. In this chapter, chapter 5, Paul says you are biting and devouring one another because of the false story that you have come to believe about God and about yourself and about one another. And so Paul's goal is to address these shadow stories. To name the story of light, the good news story of the gospel, to proclaim it once again, and to address these darker, more nefarious shadow stories that we so often tell, so often believe, and so often write over ourselves and those around us. And so to do that in this chapter, Paul is actually going to tell a story. And it is a kind of weird story, as you just heard. 
It's a story that may not have a lot of context for us or history for us, but Paul calls this story, he's going to use it as an allegory to contrast these stories of light and these stories of shadow. And as we work through Paul's allegory, I want to ask you a couple of questions just to have on your mind as you work through this story. And we'll come back to them at the end of it. And here are the three questions. The first one, what story do you believe and tell yourself? Did you hear the story that Paul is about to tell, the allegory that he is about to use to illustrate a story of light and a story of shadow? Which one resonates more deeply with the story that you tend to tell yourself? Question number two, what does that story do to you and others? Stories that we believe have implications for the ways that we live. What does it do to you? What does it do to your own heart? What does it do to your own imagination? How does it form community? How does it form families? Does it lead to disunity and shame and judgment or freedom? And finally, how do we live a story? How do we live it out? How do we express it? How do we make it real in our own lives and in the lives of those around us? So keep these questions in mind as we work through Paul's allegory in Galatians 4 and 5. So before we even get into the allegory, Paul wants us to know something. This is in Galatians 4, coming at the end of that chapter. Paul begins this section, and I just want to highlight this moment because he changes his tone. Throughout the book of Galatians, Paul has been building a pretty complex theological argument, and it's heavy and it's weighty, and he's going to continue to do that in this chapter, build heavy arguments that are loaded with complicated language. But if you're reading this first part of Galatians, then you see a change of tone. He reminds the Galatians how they first met. Paul was sick. We don't know what with, but Paul says he was sick. And he was so sick, in fact, the Galatians would have torn their eyes out and given them to Paul. He just expresses the kind of relationship they once had, that it was one of deep empathy, one of friendship, one of familial feelings. And then in verse 19 and 20, he says this. My little children, as I hear about all the things that you are experiencing, as I read the letters, as I hear about the tension and the difficulties that you are going through, I am experiencing labor pains again until Christ would be formed in you. I wish I could be with you now and change how I sound because I am at a loss about you. I like this moment because it just feels very human. And sometimes I think when we read the Bible, we can read it in ways that is not very human. But in this moment, Paul misses his friends. He misses the people that he loves, and he feels torn and frustrated and confused about the dynamic that's happening in Galatians. And he's like, it makes me feel like a mother who is in labor again. I love you. I care for you. And I miss you. And I wonder if that feeling is what leads to this next moment in the story because he says, I feel like I am in labor. And then he begins to tell us an allegory of two mothers who have different experiences and who represent different stories. And the story that Paul is about to tell you, I wanted to begin with his tone because the story that Paul is about to tell is a tragic one. I think it's important to know that he's approaching this like a mother in pain, 
deeply compassionate. It's not meant to be a shameful story. It's not meant to be a theological story necessarily. He's not trying to build an argument. He's trying to illustrate something. And the story that he tells is difficult, it's tragic, and he says this is an allegory for the kinds of stories that we tell ourselves. The story comes in, that, in Genesis 16 and 21, and it's a story about Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. And in the story, if you remember, maybe even back to like uh, doing kids' church, you might have remembered the story of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah receive a promise that they're going to have a child, and that that child will be a blessing to the whole world, that through that child, a nation will be born, through that nation, the world will be blessed. And then Paul says in this chapter in Galatians that this moment is the gospel in advance because it's really about Jesus. That God's going to bless Abraham with a son, and through that lineage, Jesus is going to come and rescue the whole world. It's a beautiful story, but it's also mixed with fear and insecurity because as Abraham and Sarah receive that promise, they are already quite old when they receive it. Old enough that it would be hard to believe that that promise would be true to them. They're going to have a child that will turn into a nation. But once that promise is given, it takes a while for it to set in. And as they wait, Abraham and Sarah get more nervous, more anxious about what this promise is supposed to mean, about when is it going to be fulfilled, about how is this going to happen in the world. And that anxiety and that fear and that insecurity, it begins to bubble up within them until eventually Abraham and Sarah decide that they would like to take things into their own hands and see if they can force God's will into action. And so they do something horrific. Sarah takes her Egyptian slave, a woman named Hagar, and forces her to have sexual relationships with Abraham. It's a story of abuse. And Hagar becomes pregnant with the son of Abraham. And you would think maybe, just maybe, this moment of shame, this moment of rejection, this moment of abuse, this moment of fear and insecurity in which Abraham and Sarah launch their power against Hagar, maybe it can be redeemed in the fact that Hagar is going to have a son and that'll be the son of promise. But instead, it inflames the fears even further. When Sarah and Abraham find out that Hagar is pregnant, they begin to worry that Hagar and her son will receive the promise, not Sarah and her son. And so instead of it satiating any kinds of fears, it triggers them even further. And so they begin to, as the text says in Genesis 16, mistreat her further. Until finally Hagar flees into the wilderness to escape Abraham and Sarah. Now we'll return to this story in a moment to talk through the different features of this story and this narrative. But before we do, I'm going to come back to the chapter in Galatians because Paul sees this story and he's like, this story is an allegory of the kinds of stories that we tell ourselves, the kinds of narratives that we often use in our own world. He says, these characters represent the shadow and the light story. Hagar's story is the shadow story. It's a story of rejection. It's a story of abandonment. It is a story of abuse and fear and scarcity. Abraham and Sarah try to force God's plan, and in so doing, they exploit and abuse Hagar. 
And Paul does something so wild in this moment. He takes this story and he applies it to the Christians in the community, mostly Jewish men in the community. And he says, you are living and believing and acting out of Hagar's story. You've bought into the shadow story and it is causing you and others pain. Now, the way this is happening in the book of Galatians is that a group of Jewish Christian leaders have been forcing Gentiles to fulfill the Old Testament law. And with all the different, like, strictures that come with that, there's, like, hierarchies, religious hierarchies, racial hierarchies. Maybe the worst, uh, one of the most painful is circumcision, that grown men are being asked to get circumcised in order to gather at the table with other Christians. And if they don't do these things, the tables are being separated. Jews are worshiping over here, and Gentile Christians are worshiping over here. This is the tension that is at play in the book of Galatians. And in applying the law in this way, these leaders are saying that to truly belong, to truly be righteous, to truly be a part of the family, you have to do this work. We've talked about this a lot over the last couple of weeks, about where this motive comes from, about where this intention comes from. And I think in many ways the Galatians are acting out of this because of fear. Jewish Christians have been conquered repeatedly. Right now they're under the dominion of Rome. The people are spread throughout the wild parts of the world, and they see their identity, they see their culture, they see their heritage all at stake. And so to hold on to the law feels like an important way of holding on to their identity, to hold on to the promises of God, to still be the special people of Israel, and to risk that feels, well, really risky. So I think there's a sense of fear here, and when they ask Gentile Christians to hold on to all of these performances, to do all of the work of the Torah, they're operating out of that sense of fear. Now, this story may not seem that familiar to us. We don't wrestle with Torah. We're not wrestling with circumcision. We're not wrestling with kosher. I don't know you. Maybe, you're, maybe you are. But I think this story does represent something that is deeply familiar to us. The kind of story that we tell ourselves when our fear is triggered. A kind of shadow story that can write over us a darker narrative that can lead to difficulty and to pain in our own lives. Shadow stories are stories that play on insecurities and fear. They're stories that speak to belonging, to being loved, maybe to failing. I think for me, if I was to name what I think the deepest shadow story that I have is a fear of not belonging. I don't know if it's because I'm an Enneagram 4 and I want to be special and yet at the same time belong, but I have this fear in me that I won't belong somewhere. As Hagar is chased into the wilderness, I often resonate with that fear that at some point I will overstay my welcome and be chased away. It's a fear I have. I know in almost every rational part of my brain that it is untrue, that that's not my experience in most places, that that's not how people see me, that is definitely not how God sees me, but it's an insecurity. It's a fear, 
And as that shadow story begins to play on fear and insecurities, it can be deeply motivating to the way that I live. I want to belong, and so I will work hard to belong. I'll work hard to show you that my value is high enough that you should keep me around. Like, he's pretty smart. We should probably just hold on to him just in case, you know? Try to be likable. Like, if he's funny enough, maybe he can always play the dancing clown role, you know? I think if I can work hard enough, if I can do enough, then I can possibly carve out for myself a place that will keep me in belonging, that will keep me in relationship. But it's a tricky cycle to live within, and if you feel a similar kind of shadow story, you know how difficult it is. Because the harder that you work, the more you impose on yourself a law or a standard that you must perform, the more you know it does not satiate your fear, it enlarges them. Sarah thinks that controlling the promise that she has with God will satiate her fear, and when Hagar becomes pregnant, it only enlarges those fear. You think that seizing control and getting your hands on this issue will make everything right, and as soon as you do, as soon as you think you have your hands on it, you realize, oh, this is much bigger, much more difficult, much harder to grasp than I ever imagined, and it starts to trigger those fears far worse. If I'm not funny one time, most of I begin to wonder, do I still belong? If I don't know the answer to a question, am I still a good pastor? If I don't have money in the bank, am I still a good provider? If I didn't get the promotion, like did I work hard enough? Is my identity going to be secure? You put it into these things, this impossible law, this impossible standard. It feels like maybe you can control it, but all it does is begin to enlarge the fear. And we get trapped in a cycle of fear, control, impossible laws, our inability to control those, and then more fear. I guess what's happening in the story of Galatians. There's a fear about what will happen to the people's identity, and so they try to impose the law. They try to impose perfection under the law, and Paul keeps saying you cannot be perfect under the law. It's only going to enlarge your fear. It's only going to reveal more insecurities. It's only going to reveal how hollow our attempts are, which will increase the fear. And the problem is that it doesn't just hurt us. That would be problematic enough. But it doesn't just affect us. Paul says that the Galatians are biting one another. And he says, if you're not careful, you will fully devour one another in the way that your fear lurches upon the others. Sarah exploits, abuses, and banishes Hagar. In our fear and our control, we can hurt those around us in the same way that we are hurting ourselves. That's what shadow stories do. They trigger our fear. They impose impossible standards they trap us in a cycle. And Paul looks at the Galatians in this letter, and like a mother in labor, missing his friends, deeply concerned for those around you, Paul says, that is not your story, church. 
That is not your story. It is not the story you have to tell yourself. It is not the only one available to you. It is not your story. In verse 28, the Apostle Paul says, Now you, brothers and sisters, are children of promise. In this quick verse, Paul is summarizing the previous three chapters. He's naming that you are an heir with Christ. You are beloved. You are the product of Christ's work to create belonging. You continue to tell yourself a shadow story, but here is the secret good news of the gospel. In Jesus, there really is no shadow stories. Because not even Hagar's story ends in shadow. In Genesis 16, Paul doesn't tell us the rest of this story, but he assumes we know it. But in Genesis 16, Hagar flees Abraham and Sarah. She has been abused, she has been rejected, she has been scorned, and she finds herself in the wilderness alone, worried about how she'll provide, worried about how she'll take care of her son, worried about what comes next in her life, all the logical questions that you would ask. And what happens? God chases after her, finds her in the wilderness. God makes a promise with Hagar. It's a promise quite similar to the one that he made with Abraham. That I will multiply you and care for you and provide for you. God blesses Hagar, says that he will make her flourish and her children flourish And then we get what is truly one of the most beautiful moments in the Old Testament. In Genesis 16, verse 13, Hagar has this moment. It says this, Hagar named the Lord who spoke to her. You are El Roy, the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. You are El Roy, the God who sees me. In the shadow of rejection and abandonment and abuse, God sees and pursues. And this moment that he has with Hagar is absolutely fascinating. Hagar becomes one of the very few people in the Bible who sees God. It's like Moses, Hagar, and a few other guys, (laughs) like big deal people, she sees God. And not only is she one of the only people to see God, she is the very first person in the Bible to name God. What a moment. What a story. Hagar's story is not defined by Abraham or Sarah, their rejection. That does not hide or cover the abuse and the pain. It just doesn't get to define Hagar. Hagar is God-namer. Hagar is the person who saw God in the wilderness, who was pursued to the very end and got to speak a word back. Hagar is the one who found her voice in the wilderness and whose child will be blessed and who is covenanted with her story is one of light. And that's the secret and the offense of the gospel is that all stories in Jesus end in light. 
The shadow does not get to cover or define. The abuse, the rejection does not get to define. The question for us becomes, which story do we tell ourselves? The story that God tells is a story of light, a story of love, a story of belonging, a story of welcome and of pursuit. The question is, which story do we tell ourselves? The Galatians are actively telling themselves a different story, Paul says. The story of the law, the story of bondage, Paul uses a bunch of language to illustrate it. The story of Mount Sinai versus heavenly Jerusalem. He's trying to get as many ways in there to illustrate the difference between these stories. So which story do we tell ourselves? Which one do we believe? And here's how you know the difference. Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 1, Christ has set us free for freedom. Which story leads to freedom? Christ has set us free for freedom. Therefore, stand firm and do not submit to the bondage of slavery. Again, don't believe that shadow story. Stop speaking over yourself a story of sin and rejection and abandonment when that is not the story that God speaks. The gospel story, the good news story of Jesus, it leads to freedom. It is to know ourselves as loved and as welcomed And it is to operate and exist and move in the world out of the security of love and belonging. The gospel leads to freedom. That is how we discern a true story. It leads to Hagar discovering her voice and God in the wild. It would lead to the Galatians worshiping together, free of the racial and religious hierarchy that is so consuming them. And it would lead to us being free of the shadow stories that impose impossible laws out of our fear on us. Now, sometimes this leads to a critique of Paul that he is seeing coming in Galatians chapter 5, that true freedom can't be the way of Jesus because that's just a license for sin. But Paul says that is to misunderstand what true freedom is. He says this in verse 5 through 6, which I think is a really beautiful statement. He says, We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness through the Spirit by faith. Being circumcised or not being circumcised doesn't matter in Christ Jesus. But faith, working through love, oh, that does matter. Faith working through love. Sin in Scripture is often what happens when we, in fear and insecurity, try to seize control over God and others. It's Abraham and Sarah in their fear and in their insecurity refusing to wait on God. And in their refusal to wait, they seize control and abuse Hagar. It's the church in Galatians refusing to trust the promise that Jesus has made all things new, and so instead they seize control and divide the community along racial and religious barriers, imposing their own control because it makes them feel safe. It's 
an attempt to seize control. Instead of faith working through love, it is fear working through control. I think the shadow story makes it feel like it's freedom. But if we just look at what it does, we can see that it's not. Hagar rejected, table divided. They said true freedom is faith working through love. It is the security and existence we find in love. The more secure I am, the freer I become. The more I know my belonging, the more I am free. The more I know who I am, the freer I become. The more that I know I am loved irrevocably, the freer I become. True freedom is to exist and move in the security of love. And Paul says in verse 23 of this chapter, there is no law against that. That's the life of flourishing. I said this a couple weeks ago. G.K. Chesterton said, the point of the Christian order is that good things might grow wild. That's why Paul ends this chapter by talking about fruit. What happens when love is unleashed in security? Oh, something good will begin to grow wild. But I think we can also recognize that as beautiful as that is, it can be difficult to know ourselves deeply and securely rooted in love. When the shadow story plays within us, it is difficult to know ourselves as rooted and secure and safe. Abraham is often told to be a man of faith. Like we celebrate him in the Bible. It's this great man of faith. And yet he still feels insecure at moments. And out of that anxiety and out of that fear, sin. So when that question begins to play on us, it can be difficult to hold on. And I think that's why Paul spends a lot of this chapter talking about the Spirit. He says, We wait in faith by the Spirit. And in verse 16, he says that this kind of life is a life that is guided by the Spirit. And we've been talking about the Spirit a lot in Galatians. Paul talks about the Spirit a lot in Galatians. And I've been thinking about this, and then this week, uh, I came across the writings of a 12th century monk. I don't know if this happens to you. Uh, (laughs) I came across the readings of a 12th century monk who has this beautiful, beautiful quote that I think helps illustrate why Paul would talk so much about the Spirit in a chapter about love and freedom. The monk Bernard says this, If, as is properly understood, the Father is he who kisses, the Son he who is kissed, then it cannot be wrong to see in the kiss the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit is the imperturbable peace of the Father and the Son, their unshakable bond, their undivided love, their indivisible unity. This is a beautiful idea just as we reflect on who God is. But it is also a beautiful idea because of what it might mean for people who are filled with the Spirit. Who God says, my spirit dwells within you. My spirit has come upon you. 
the Spirit is the kiss between the Father and the Son, and when God gives His Spirit to us, it is a demonstration of God's imperturbable peace and affection poured out for us. It is the demonstration, the sign, and the presence of God's peace, God's unshakable bond, God's undivided love. When we receive the Spirit, we receive the affection and the love of God. The Spirit is God's constant moving towards us. And I think to be guided in the Spirit or to be waiting in the Spirit means to be guided into undivided love. Paul says, how do we live this story of light, this story of love? And then he says, we are guided into it by the love, the affection, and the presence of the Spirit, who is the demonstration and the sign of God's unceasing, undivided commitment to us. We live this life the same way Hagar did, by being pursued in the wild, by seeing the God who sees us, by being filled with the Spirit who is the demonstration and the sign of God's love for us. So, Missio, with that, let's return to our three questions at the beginning. What story do you tell yourself? Stories of shadow or stories of light? Stories of welcome and of belonging, stories of seeing the God who sees you and offering a name in return, or stories of abandonment. What story do you speak over yourself? What story do you tell? What does that story do in your life and the lives of others? Does it lead to freedom or to bondage? Does it lead to good things growing wild, to the fruit that's described at the end of this chapter, to flourishing and abundance? What a shame. Control and fear. How do you live that story? How do we live this light story? Just receive the Spirit and to know ourselves as loved. Mr. I just want to ask one more question as you reflect on those and before we come to the table. And it's very simple. It's just this. What if we believed the good news story? What might happen in our lives, in the lives of our communities, in the lives of our families? What might happen in our own heart if we believed the good news story? Paul says, you just might be free. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your story. That in your story, in your work, in the offense of the cross, there is no shadow story that gets to define us. You, the light that entered the world and the darkness cannot abide it. You are the one who chased us into the wild to speak a word of promise. You are the one who sees. 
and who in seeing us gives us the vision to see. So God, today as we hear that story, as we declare the gospel in advance to Abraham, to Hagar, would we hear it declared to us? Would we hear the invitation to receive your story as our own story? This is our story. We are loved beyond measure. God, let it root us deeply in the security of your presence. And would it make us free? In your loving name we pray. Amen.